Good evening, everybody. So for those of you who weren't here last week or you were here, but you have so much going on through the week, you can't remember one day from the next. Last week, we, we opened up the book of Philippians, and Pastor Eric took us through um, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And I'm going to pick up at verses 12 through 26 tonight. So first, I'm going to read the entire passage. And then throughout the rest of the evening, we'll just break down each verse. But first, let's pray. Dear Lord, Father, we thank you so much for allowing us to be here. It's by your will that we're here, God, and we thank you and we're thankful for it. Lord, open our ears, soften our hearts, Father. Bless me as I lead this, God. I just want to be an instrument in your hands, Father. Let us be changed by what you allow us to experience tonight, both the speaker and the hearers, Father. By Jesus' name we pray and we thank you. Amen. So, we're going to start with verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. May God bless the reading of his word. So first verse. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. I think that we would all agree that there's very few faith-oriented statements that Christians and non-Christians agree to be true. One of those faith-oriented statements would be something along the lines of everything happens for a reason. And the belief by believers and unbelievers that everything happens for a reason, is rooted in the notion that there's a grand scheme, a, a bigger picture that causes things to happen or a bigger picture that is impacted by things that happen. And both groups usually believe that the reason for the incident is somehow for a greater good. What's interesting, though, is sometimes in their position that everything happens for a reason, unbelievers give a glimpse of the truth that they know characteristics of God that they normally deny. So this means that they know that he doesn't fit this heavenly grandfather image that is only love and makes no demands on how they live. 
They know God biblically, at least in part, but they blinded themselves to that knowledge. Now, once we do a little digging beyond that, we start to see that that sameness falls apart pretty quickly. So what we're going to do tonight is look at both of those, look at the one perspective of everything happening for a reason from a Christian perspective and then from an unchristian perspective. So first we'll start with Christian perspective. Usually things that cause people to say everything happens for a reason are un, un, unpleasant events. That's not something good. Now, something that most people would file under the category of an unpleasant event is being thrown in jail for doing good. And there's no greater thing that of, of eternal consequence that anyone can do besides share the gospel. But yet, this is where Paul finds himself writing this letter. Now, when we Christians say everything happens for a reason, we're saying that not only is God sovereign, meaning that he's the ruler of everything in creation, from the most microscopic to things so enormous that it boggles our mind, but he's also providential, meaning he guides the activities. He causes the most microscopic and the, the biggest things in creation to act and move. <clears throat> and we can tell that this, this truth is at the root of Paul's attitude and his predicament. Because let's read verse 12 again. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So Paul's not seeing that advancing the gospel is secondary to the fact that he's in prison. He's not saying that there's, he's there for some other reason, and while he's there, he might as well preach. He's not making lemonade out of lemons. Understanding that God is providential, Paul was put in that bad situation so that he could preach the gospel. So how do we know this? Because Paul tells us himself, we're going to read this a little bit later in verse 16, but he says that people are encouraged to preach the gospel, knowing that he was put in prison to advocate for the, for the gospel. So Paul's not simply seizing the opportunity to advance the gospel in this situation, just like we don't seize the opportunity to do our job when we go to work. To work is the reason why we are at work. So Paul's imprisonment is, is no accident. It's, it's not a random occurrence. He's, he's simply there fulfilling the reason he was put there, which was to preach the truth of the ultimate purpose and, and, and function of everything created, to glorify God. As an aspect of his creation, we're obligated to glorify God. He gave us our life so that we could glorify him with it. That's the purpose and that's the meaning of life. And Jesus summarizes how, how we glorify God in his response to which commandment is the greatest. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus cleverly and wisely is saying they're, they're, they're both equal. So we glorify God when we strive to love him with all of our heart and with all of our mind. And we do this by growing and knowing him, not just growing in knowledge. I mean, that's an important part in growing to know him. We have to, we have to know things about him. But knowing him more by cultivating a life of intimacy with him, like we did when we were getting to know our spouse. Hopefully you did that and still doing it. And by spending time with him and studying him and listening to him eagerly, striving to please him at every opportunity. We glorify God when we love others by lacing all the various ways that we interact with people, 
that we clothe those interactions with, with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And also for God's glory, he works for the good of those who trust in Jesus Christ. Romans 8.28 tells us, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. When God says all things, when he says everything, we as humans have a, a tendency to limit them. God doesn't. So when he says all things, all things work together for the good of those who love him, which even means bad situations. Bad situations from things that are just slightly annoying and inconvenient that make us flippantly say, well, everything happens for a reason, to things that are so heinous and atrocious that would make some people believe, maybe not believe in God, or wonder if there is a God, could he possibly care about people to let something like that happen? God is good. He does exist, and he does care. And because of that, everything, even atrocious things, work for the good of those who love him. And this is why Paul is not discouraged about being in prison. He understands the reason for it. So real quickly, let's switch over to the unbeliever perspective of everything happens for a reason. Because actually there's an opportunity through this to share the gospel with them. What's interesting is when a Christian, when an, uh, when an unbeliever says, did I say let's speak, let's talk about, I'm talking about unbelievers now. In my mind, I think I just said, let's talk about Christians. We're talking about, we're talking about unbelievers right now. Since they, since they don't know who God is and they dismiss his sovereignty, it's interesting to know where they think the ramifications of everything happening would pop up. Like, when they say everything happens for a reason, like they get a flat tire in Egg Harbor Township, do they think that it's going to impact somebody's life in India? Or some kind of way, is it going to cause a ripple effect and make them better years from now? Or does it alter the universe in some kind of way? Or do they just say it because it makes them sound good and you know, positive or, or something like that? But even in their ignorance, non-Christians sometimes reveal the biblical truth that everyone knows enough about God that they should know how to respond to him properly. Romans 1, 18, 21 reads, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So what's this mean? That, it's, that God has revealed himself to everyone, everyone. Verse 18 says, what can be shown about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. And if God has shown it to them, they didn't miss it. It's impossible. The evidence of God is so obvious that it's impossible for people not to know who he is and really what he expects. And people who deny, people who deny God the, the glory that he deserves, either by flat out denying that he exists or admitting that he exists but living as though it doesn't matter, simply do this because they suppress the obvious truth that he is alone Lord. And as I said earlier, Usually when people say everything happens for a reason, it's because something bad has happened. So when a non-believer says everything happens for a reason, and we say, 
all right, well, what do you think that reason is? They're usually not going to give the one correct answer. And that correct answer is for God's glory. Now, the closest they'll come to it is they'll say God has a plan, which doesn't answer the question. It opens up another question, which is, well, what's his plan? Remember, what probably sparks this conversation in the first place is a tragedy happened, whether it was a global tragedy or just something in, in another person's life. But also remember, God is providential. So the truth, as hard as it is sometimes to accept, is that even bad things happen by God's command. Amos 3.6 tells us, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And when the Lord does it, it's for his glory. When we explain to unbelievers and even sometimes believers, I had this conversation on Monday with somebody. When we explain that even bad things happen to God, for God's glory, you know what happens next. They come up with the worst case scenario they can think of at that moment involving babies. You know, oh yeah, God's glorified by everything, but what about when this happens to a baby or when that happens to a baby? And, but actually in that is where proof that they know God a lot better than they let on meets the eye. Because they use scenarios involving not themselves, but babies to counter the truth that everything happens for God's glory. Why? Although unbelievers suppress the truth of, of God, who God is, through their hard-heartedness, they aren't completely blind to it. They just deeply ignore what they know. Unbelievers who don't use themselves as this, this hapless victim of tragic events do it because in their hearts of heart, they know who God is and they know what they aren't, which is innocent. So during conversations like these, they flash glimpses of that knowledge. They know who God is, namely right and just. They know that they fall short of his glory and from their perspective, if they do something bad, they're going to get punished. And if they do something right or do something good, God's going to bless them in the way that they want to be blessed. Now, we know that that's not the way that it necessarily works, but that's their thinking. So nonetheless, they couldn't question the justice of God if something bad happened to them, because in their heart of hearts, they know they deserve it. That's why they go with babies, because babies to them are the most innocent thing that they can think of. They know they couldn't use themselves to question God's fairness, but maybe they can use a baby. Still, in answer to their scenario, yeah, God is glorified even when bad things happen to babies. But here's our opportunity to share the gospel when somebody throws a baby in the mix. Now, we don't need to get roped into a conversation about the babies because at the end of the day, that's really not the point. And they wouldn't understand or accept the answer anyway. But we can easily transform this, this hypothetical conversation into the truth that people who die without Christ are lost. And we can do it in a gracious way that doesn't really dismiss their question. Because really, even though the reason they ask the question isn't necessarily pure, it's a good question. It's a valid question. We probably have those questions ourselves sometimes, at least before we became familiar with God's sovereignty. So, and I've actually had these conversations a few times. So I'm not saying I'm an expert, but I'm saying that if your conversation contains some of this stuff, you're going to open up the doors for some great conversations. So if you said something along the lines of, that's a great question. And you know what? I'm not sure if I can clearly answer it to you, for you right now. But the truth of the matter is, yes, 
we may not understand it, we may not like it, it may be hard to accept, but when bad things happen, God's glorified. His word tells us this. So even when bad things happen to babies, God gets the honor. But what about you? You use the baby in your scenario and not yourself, and you probably did that because in your mind, babies are innocent, and you know that you're not. And guess what? Neither am I. Neither is anybody. And God is a holy God. He's a righteous God. And he tells us in his word that there's a penalty for anyone who comes before him unrighteous. That's all of us. But then there's Jesus. And then the door is wide open. And I'm telling you, any conversation involving a baby is an attention like holder. You've got their eyes. You know, so then to be able to open that. Now, they may not walk away, you know, a Christian, but you got their attention. And you've glorified God because there was that opportunity. Um, the NFV translation of Colossians 4, 5, and 6 says, Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to give an answer to anyone. So these conversations about God being glorified in bad things gives us the opportunity to do what Paul is doing in prison advancing the gospel with people that he wouldn't have normally come in contact with. This was the reason for his incarceration. Finally, you're probably thinking, we're getting to verse 13. We're not going to be here all night, folks, I promise. Everything else will go faster. <laughs> verse 13, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. When Paul says that his imprisonment is for Christ, he's explaining that he's in prison only for sharing the gospel, not because of anything else. This circumstance allowed Paul to reach a group of people that he would not have been able to reach otherwise. Now, when he says the whole imperial guard, it's important to understand the size of the imperial guard and exactly who they were. The imperial guard was a group of, about, of several thousand soldiers and they were highly trained. They were the equivalent of like Navy SEALs and Army Rangers. And they only had one job, to guard high-ranking Roman officials. That was it. And these were like really, really smart guys. They were astute guys. They were educated guys. So what Paul was going through was certainly not lost on them. Now, we don't have biblical accounts of the conversation that Paul had with them. We just know he was talking about Christ. And we don't know what they were saying to each other. But the word says that it spread throughout the, the entire Imperial Guard. So the conversation may have gone something like this. Remember, these are pretty smart guys. So they're probably saying to each other, you know, look, we're, we're this crack unit of soldiers. We're the best of the best. And we're here guarding this guy, Paul, who really hasn't done anything wrong except talk about Jesus. And it was talking about Jesus that got him thrown into prison and he still won't stop talking about him. And our bosses don't like what he's doing so much that they've assigned us to guard him. I got to learn more about this man, Jesus. Now, of course, not all the Imperial Guard came to become believers, but we know that they all heard the message. We know that the message also spread not only through the imperial guard, but also through, Jews, through the Jewish and, and Gentile community living in Rome too, because in that verse it says all the rest that Paul mentions, that's, that's, the, that's that group. But brothers and sisters, you know how, how God works. You know, 
one of the soldiers may have even been mocking what Paul was saying to another soldier or somebody outside. And that person said, this is the third time I heard about this. People keep talking about Jesus. I'm feeling this tug. I need to, I need to submit. I was speaking with one of my brothers who's a, one of my Christian brothers, who's a staunch advocate for spreading the gospel. If you talk to him, he's going to talk about the Lord. And he said that he was really focused on this over the last 20 or 30 years of his life, of being a Christian. He said something really interesting. He said that he has never shared the gospel with anybody to his knowledge that came to Christ. Never. I said, well, how many people do you think you, you talked to? And he said, probably hundreds. He said, nobody. He goes, there's people, he's, he's lost relationships with his family. Nobody has come to know. Now, he, he wasn't discouraged by it, but he wasn't happy. And, you know, a verse came to me when um, we were talking. And it's 1 Corinthians, I believe it's 5.12, for we all must appear before the judgment throne of Christ, each to receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And we don't know, you know, what that is going to be like. Now, we know at that point, it's not the great white throne judgment. It's not that God's casting, you know, people go to hell and um, the lamb are going to heaven. But he's asking, how did you live your life? So let's say that God were to ask us, all right, let's talk about you sharing the gospel. How do you think you did? Most of us would probably say we were pretty inefficient, not very effective. Not my friend would say, God, I tried. Nobody came to know you. What if God said, I'm going to have you turn around, and I'm going to look, you're going to see all the people who I brought to myself through you. And we turned around. I think we'd be amazed. I think we'd see people who originally ran from us. I think we'd see people who mocked us. I think we'd see people who we shared the gospel with, and later on they shared it with somebody else. We'd see family members who we've never met, but the legacy of how God led us to live our lives impacted them. I think we would be amazed to see what God has done through us for his glory. Verses 14 and 18 show that Paul's imprisonment caused two groups of people with entirely different motives to do the same thing and ultimately achieve the same results. Paul's imprisonment resulted in both groups preaching the gospel, which resulted in the gospel being advanced. But one group became emboldened by Paul's imprisonment to preach the gospel to intentionally glorify God. Verse 14 says, And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And verse 16, The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. So many Christians that heard of Paul's imprisonment concluded that if Paul can preach while he's in bonds, I can preach while I'm free. Or if Paul is risking his life to, to, to preach, then who am I to try to hold on to mine? But these verses also speak of the second group of people. And these are the people who preached the gospel, but they did it for selfish reasons. Verse 15 says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Verse 17 says, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. The spirit of Paul's comment here is reminiscent of what Joseph's statement was to his brothers. 
after his imprisonment. So I think we're all familiar with it, but you know, out of jealousy, Joseph's brother sold him into slavery. And he was about 17 years old when that happened. He became vice regent of, of Egypt, which was like the second most powerful person in Egypt. And Egypt was the most powerful country in the world at that time. So Joseph rose to the ranks of the, most, the second most powerful man in the world. And he was 30 at that time. So 13 years was between slavery and becoming this vice regent position. Now we know during that time, he served as, a, as either a slave or a prisoner. He was, he was captive. Now we know God blessed him in a lot of, but it, it obviously wasn't a bowl of cherries because he tried to, because Joseph tried to get out of it. We know that in verse 40 in Genesis because he's in prison and he happens to spend some time with the king's cupbearer and baker and they're having these dreams and they tell Joseph and Joseph interprets the dream. And he tells them, you're gonna be released in three days. Your dream means you're getting out of here. So they were happy, they were impressed. And he said, hey, but remember, I hooked you up, right? So tell the king about me and get me out of here. I don't want to be a prisoner anymore. Of course they didn't. So then we fast forward to Genesis 42, and now he's vice regent of Egypt. And his brother, his king, and one certain friend says, God meant that many people should be kept alive as they are. This is what Paul was saying about Enstam to try to inflict harm on them some kind of way for them. What's interesting is, what do you think they were saying? Like, what could, you know, it, it's, it's, it's possible they could say that. Why, was, why is he in prison? I mean, obviously he's got other things to word accurately, but he's in prison and so am I. I'm a good guy. Maybe, maybe you need to be following me, not him. Maybe he's a fraud. We can only speculate what what people were saying because Paul doesn't waste any time mentioning exactly what they're saying because he doesn't care about how what they were saying might af afflict him personally. We know that for sure because Paul clearly tells us that. He says in verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. But then in verse 18, he says, and I'm, I'm using the NIV translation here, it says, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Paul was so passionate about the word of God being preached that his attitude was like Joseph's. They meant it for harm, but God meant it for good. Now, this truth also applies to the Roman officials who tried to silence the gospel. They thought by throwing Paul in prison, at least he wouldn't be able to preach to anybody outside, or maybe he would learn his lesson and just be quiet. But it didn't silence the gospel. It just, it, it spread it. Going down to verse 19. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So this verse tells us that Paul knew that he was going to be released from prison alive. Now, how exactly he knew would be that he'd be released isn't mentioned, but I have a speculation based on biblical evidence. I couldn't wait to say that tonight because I thought that would make me sound really smart, but that was you know, forensic Bible study. Um, <laughs> right, so Paul's belief that he was going to be released from prison wasn't, wasn't, wasn't wishful thinking, it wasn't positive of power, of, of, of positive thinking, and it wasn't a gut feeling. 
Paul may have known that he was definitely getting out of prison because it was supernaturally revealed to him. The Lord revealed, revealed other things to Paul. Um, in Acts 18, 8 to 10, it reads, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household, and that many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. There's some debate as to what location this prison was where Paul wrote this letter. Most scholars know that he wrote the, the letter from prison, but they don't know where it was. But most of them believe that it was in Rome. So what's interesting about this is about nine or ten years after he wrote this letter, he ended up in another Roman prison. And that time, he didn't walk out of it. He wrote in 2 Timothy 4, 6, and 7, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Sounds like a man who is pretty confident that he's reached the end of his life. So how did he know he would walk out of one prison but not the other? Maybe it was through a vision. Maybe it was through some other supernatural source. But it seems that his knowledge was through extraordinary means. God may not reveal things to us in such spectacular fashion, but he does reveal things to us. It could be something as simple as you're going into a situation that's kind of stressful, that's tense, but you feel this calm that things are going to work out okay. You don't know exactly how, but you know that it, that it is. Or maybe God leads you to do something a little bit different today than you normally do. Take a different route. Do something just a little bit different. Now, I'm not talking, you know, crazy things like, you know, when, when Jesus is going to return, but the simple, ordinary things of life. God speaks to us. Now, in order to consistently receive this kind of communication from God, we got to emulate some of the things that Paul did in his life, parts of his lifestyle. We need to strive to be close to God. We need to immerse ourselves in his word, and we need to pray early and often. We also need to just, just quiet our minds and be still and feel his presence, praying that God would guide our thoughts. And if he so chooses, speak to us in a way that he hasn't spoken to us before. He can do it, but we can also expect that he may not, and, and that's okay. But it probably won't happen if we don't expect it to. We also see in verse 19 that not only did God reveal to Paul that he would be delivered from prison, but he also revealed the two means through which it would happen. And one means is through prayer. He says it, for I know that through your prayers. We see an interesting truth about prayer here that I think we should spend a little time um, talking about. The Bible tells us that God doesn't change his mind. It tells it right, right there in, in Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie, or son of man that he should change his mind. We're probably familiar with that verse, right? But doesn't it seem like God changes his mind sometime? Nobody wants to say it. I'm too much of it. I'm not going to reveal it. No, it does. I mean, look, Exodus 32, verses 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. 
He's saying, Moses, get out of my way. I'll burn them down and you'll be my seed. We'll, we'll, we'll just start all over again. And Moses, in, in verse 12, prays, turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. In verse 19, I mean, I'm sorry, verse 14, it says, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. I'm going to ask you one more time. Does it seem like the Lord changes his mind? It does. I mean, he said he was going to do one thing, and then he's, now he's going to do something different. But God is immutable. So you're right to be hesitant. I was trying to lure you into this. But you, God is immutable. He, he, he doesn't change. He doesn't change the way he plans to act towards situation, but he responds to prayer. 2 Corinthians 7.14 reads, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Prayer doesn't change God or change God's mind, but prayer changes situations. A situation prayed over is much different than the same situation not prayed over. And how God responds to both of them will be different. In Exodus, God was truly going to wipe out the Israelites. He wasn't faking. He wasn't being dramatic to show how angry he was. They were going to be toast. But Moses' prayer changed that situation, not God's mind. God created believers to have a relationship with him. And a common means of that relationship is prayer. If prayer amounted to nothing, why would the Lord make it an elemental aspect of our faith? If God was going to do what he was going to do anyway, why, why tell us to pray? That, that doesn't sound like a relationship. Faithful, sincere prayer from a heart truly devoted to God always, always, without fail, causes something to happen. Somewhere, somehow. We may not see it, but it changes something. It may not be what we want. But God will, maybe just by changing the way we get through that situation, is a situation changed. God responds. So yes, prayer makes a difference because God has established it to work that way. And if God established it to work that way, it works. So Paul knew that the, that the prayers of the people praying for him was going to change the situation that he was in, resulting in him walking out of, of prison. We also see in this verse that through the, it's, it's through the help of the Holy Spirit that Paul was going to be released. So the Holy Spirit is really the driving force in all of this. Paul's knowledge and confidence that he was going to be released, his peace in the situation, um, in leading the believers to pray in the first place. It was all the work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. So now Paul is referring to the overall power of the gospel. As it is my eager expectation and hope, he means that what follows this statement is according to his normal position that the gospel is true and, and everything that it says will come to fruition. I will not be at all ashamed. What he's saying is no one's ever going to be able to say, hey, Paul, you know all that gospel work you did? All that preaching, all those churches you planted, all those words of encouragement, all the writing you did? Nothing. Don't you feel foolish? because it, it's meaningless. The gospel is real and true, and Paul knew it. And one day, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Next part of that verse. But that with full courage, now as always, 
Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So Paul is bringing into view his history of boldly preaching Christ. In this, we see that he's also bringing into view the theme of this message that everything happens for a reason, which is to glorify God. He's saying that as long as he lives, he'll continue to glorify God. If he dies, even his death will honor the Lord because it will be because of the gospel that he loses his life. Um, which happens 10 years from now. Now, considering the, the impact, I'm sorry, yeah, considering the impact that Paul's imprisonment had on, the, on spreading the gospel, imagine what his death had. The people saw that he was devoted enough to this that he gave up his life. Verses 21-23 summarizes Paul's dilemma. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. To say that Paul was passionate about the Lord and spreading the gospel would be kind of a vast understatement. It's what he lived for. So in these verses, it seems that, that Paul's kind of writing out a, a debate that he's having within himself in real time. He's saying on one hand, if he's alive, he can get so much more gospel work done, and there's so much work to be done. But then he's saying, on the other hand, he gets to be with the person that he loved and he's been so zealous to preach for so long. But it doesn't take him long to settle on which one he would choose. He says that he'd rather be with Christ. My guess is all of us would say that. I think what makes it hard for us is the departing part. You know, the thought of, of, of leaving the people and the things that bring us so much joy is, is, is hard. And I'm, I'm sure that a few factors, and this came up in our growth group, I mean our home fellowship group last night. Somebody mentioned that the older she gets, the more ready she is to, to be with Christ. And I'm sure a lot of factors kind of feed into that kind of um, resolution, you know, quality of health, the intensity of struggles and life challenges and, and anything else that makes life hard. But at least according to appearances, with the people that I know pretty well out there, it looks like everybody here is living a pretty blessed life. I don't think anybody's ready to sing Swing Low Sweet Chariot yet. But it's, it's hard to imagine being without some of the things that we enjoy. It would be hard to depart from those things. But the encouragement that we can lean on is that the Bible tells us there's no tears in heaven. The Bible tells us that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no heart can fully know what God has in store for us. So though departing may be hard, I got a feeling the moment it happens, for those of us in Christ, we're going to be all right. We're probably going to go, man, this is what I was missing? So we're going we're gonna to be good. So Paul mentions what is better for him, but in the next verse, he acknowledges what is better for believers. He says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Paul knows that God is calling him to continue to serve him through living right now, not through dying. So going in on to verse 25 and 26, he says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus 
because of my coming to you again. So Paul is finishing his thought about his confidence that he is going to walk out of prison and not be carried out through death. He's going to be physically delivered back to the church. Everything happens for a reason. And through what we read tonight, we see that the Lord blesses us to ultimately know what that reason is. All things happen for the glory of God. So we, we don't necessarily understand the specific ways that God will move sometimes, especially in bad situations. But we must remember that God is always good. He's always just. He's always loving. He's always merciful. It's going to be good. So God, who loves us so much that he reveals to us the purpose of everything, is faithful to help us through everything that happens for his glory and for our good. So through this scripture tonight, we have an opportunity to, like Paul, be convinced and to rejoice. Let's pray. Dear Lord, Father, we thank you for the power of your word, God. We thank you for the truthfulness of it. It's beyond error, Father. We may not understand all of it, but God, you give us the Holy Spirit to walk through it, Father, and to live in it. We pray that that's exactly what would happen, God. Let us not be the same after hearing this word. Let us be encouraged, Father. Let us rejoice in everything that happens, God, because we know at the end of it, you will be glorified, and it will work out for our good. We praise you and we thank you, Father. Amen.